Hey, thank you for joining us on another episode of Popcorn for Breakfast with your co-host, Kirk. Hello, hello. I'm your other co-host, Cam. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Kirk and I are both wearing red. We were we were discussing why that's the case, what it means, if anything. I said it means nothing because I'm lame. I don't have an imagination, I guess. Um, but red is a power color for sure. Um, so read into that what you will. We're both feeling good. We're both feeling powerful today, I think. That's right. That's right. We feel strong. That's why we came into this so strong. Mine looks... It's it's redder in real life. I'm not sure what my camera is picking up. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a little weak with the camera, but it's yeah. it's real strong in real life. So yeah, and it's funny. I keep uh, in every episode over the past few weeks, I keep referencing like what we're uh, either wearing or like something visually. And I haven't posted an episode on YouTube in a long time. So it's like <laughs> everybody who keeps being like, oh, he keeps mentioning YouTube, and none of these episodes are on there. It's coming. I just have a huge backlog of videos that I need to get, but it's all good. It's all good because. The holidays are upon us. There will be free time. Not really. You know, you always no, think you're going to have no. free time over the holidays. It's the exact opposite. You get all this like fake free time where mm-hmm. you're like off of work, but you're actually busier than if you were working. So yeah, it's like a drug, right? It's like, oh my goodness, I'm so excited. If I could just get to Thanksgiving and like when I have all this free time and then you get there and it's not as good because we were spoiled, uh, indoctrinated as children (laughs) to have this this idea of free time and time off. And no, it's in fact, sometimes busier, sometimes busier. Oh, 100%. But, uh, my, my wife and kids were out of town this last weekend on a trip to go visit her grandmother and I w- would have gone, but I had to work on Monday, so I couldn't make it work. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. I have not, I've never had this since, since I've been a father. Like two days at home, nothing to do, no kids, just the dogs. Like I'm, I am going to relax. I'm going to reset my brain. I did none of that. I, like I was, I was cleaning. I was doing laundry. <laughs> I was like doing the things that should be happening during a normal week, but our life is so crazy that I can't do it. So they got back today and I was like, that sucked. <laughs> I've been waiting for this and it totally sucked. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's oh, just, no. that's the, that's the plight of, of being an adult in the real It's a world. double-edged sword because there's like such gra- just such satisfaction and joy I get when I clean the yeah, house. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is popcorn for breakfast. Movie trailers, movie reviews, and dad life. Uh, let's let's get be clear. Yeah, to there's our listeners. instant there's instant gratification. Yes, and you you get this 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 uh, just joy, and then you you sit in your clean kingdom, and you're like, "Well, I really want to take a really long nap, but oh, well, I got to go to work. I'm out of time. Right? <laughs> I just used all I just used all my time creating this, and now I don't even get to enjoy it. Yeah, man, it's tough." It's tough sledding, but you know, we'll get through it. The holidays are still great. I still want the time off work, even though I know it's going to be incredibly busy. It's the, it's the good kind of busy, but, um, it's exciting. We got Thanksgiving coming up this week. And that is the reason that this episode that we're recording right now, we're recording it on a Monday, which we rarely, if ever do. And we're going to release it on a Tuesday. The whole thing, what's popping movie news. We're putting it all out at once because, like we got a holiday to celebrate. Let's get this thing postmarked and in the mailbox now so that while you guys are traveling around as people 
I guess, do over Thanksgiving. That's what I learned from TV is that people travel for Thanksgiving. I've never done it. Um, but as you guys are traveling around, you have a nice long episode of Popcorn for Breakfast to keep you company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it'll be so good. Strap in for some turkey love from Cam turkey and love. Ugh. Turkey love. That's the movie we're reviewing. Turkey no. love. From I would never. I would never watch a movie the Coen called Brothers. that unless it was directed by, yeah, the Coen Brothers or Paul Thomas Anderson or something like that. I mean, Paul <laughs> no. Thomas oh, Anderson literally has a movie coming out called Licorice Pizza, and I yes. could not be more excited about that. So This is Turkey Love, directed by Lars von Trier. No, hard pass. <laughs> hard, hard pass. Nicholas Winding Refn, still a hard pass. Uh, <laughs> it depends on... It depends on which avenue we're going with a movie called that, but here we are. So Thanksgiving coming up. Thanksgiving's always a, a pretty good movie-watching holiday. I would say it's a top five movie-watching holiday because there's usually movies coming out. Um, Encanto's coming out this week, a couple of others. Hawkeye drops on Wednesday. I know that's not a movie, but there's there's usually some good entertainment that drops around Thanksgiving. It's not as elite of a movie holiday as, say, Christmas or... Right. Well, I don't know. I don't know what else ranks above it. Actually, a sleeper pick for best movie holiday is Martin Luther King Day. Okay? Mm. Which, and it has nothing to do with movies being released that day or the holiday itself. It has everything to do with the timing of it because it's during award season. You get a Monday off, and like some people still aren't off for that holiday, which is crazy. But some people still aren't off, so if you decide to go to the theater, they're usually pretty light. So mm-hmm. stick that in your in your notebook for future reference because that's a that's a good one. But Thanksgiving is a good movie holiday, so we're going to be reviewing a movie today. It's not the movie we thought we would be reviewing because again, life is busy. We planned on reviewing Ghostbusters Afterlife, and that is still very much in the queue for a review coming up soon. But we were busy and. Lin-Manuel Miranda's directorial debut, Tick, Tick, Boom, hit Netflix this weekend, and we had to, we just had to. We had to get into it. Like, I, I couldn't wait to watch it, so I did, Kirk did, and uh, we're ready to talk about it. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We are. We are. This is going to be extraordinary. So strap in. Strap in, everyone, because... I don't know. Uh, just a little preview of my uh, of my review here. It's Uh-oh. gonna be out of this world. It might be above ten kernels. It might be what above twenty kernels. You're I just tipping want... your score right now. I know. I know. I just really want to encourage them to listen to the end. Well, now because... they know. Well, they don't know yours. I'm giving it a zero. <laughs> <laughs> so episode over, I guess. No, you'll have to stick around and find out, but. We'll see. Well, is Kirk a man of his word? In my experience, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned <laughs> to find out if he's telling the truth. How's that for uh, burying the lead there, Kirk? All right, here we go. <laughs> Let's jump into what's popping because we do have movie news as well that we need to discuss. Not very much of it, but some. Okay, first up. This is something we didn't get to talk about last week because the the details around it were a little bit fuzzy. I think the sources were sort of ironing out their story, but I'm talking Star Wars. So if you are a friend of the program and have listened religiously, you will know that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the Patty Jenkins Star Wars film, 
Rogue Squadron had been delayed or moved off of the 2022 production schedule due to what they were saying was scheduling conflicts. On that episode, you and I speculated a little bit that it may not be scheduling conflicts and may have something to do with Lucasfilm. You know, I think I was theorizing that Lucasfilm just wasn't ready to put out a movie right now, which I think still could be true. But there are reports coming out from The Hollywood Reporter and former Hollywood Reporter editor Matt Belloni. Um, not Baloney, but Matt Baloney. <laughs> yeah, as a reporter, as a reliable source, you don't want your last name to be Baloney. But this guy's last name is Bellani, Baloney. I don't know. Um, it's Italian, but he's a former he's a former The Hollywood Reporter editor, and he says that the real reason the movie was shelved was due to creative differences, and that the Ryan Johnson trilogy has also been shelved for the same reason and that Taika Waititi's movie is in danger as well. So big time problems at, at in Star Wars land um, in terms of the movie making side of the biz. But here's the thing, Kirk. This is not the first time we've heard of creative differences at Lucasfilm, is it? Uh, you might no. remember Colin Trevorrow for he was supposed to direct Skywalker Saga. Um Chris Miller, Phil Lord, uh, were supposed to write and direct Solo. Didn't happen. Uh, we, we've seen this. We've seen this happen a few times with them, and it's becoming more and more common. And it begins to make you kind of scratch your head and wonder, what's going on here, Kirk? What's going on with Star Wars? And how do you? How does this make you feel about future? feature film Star Wars properties. You know, when all of these people are going against the same team, all the people who are walking away, who have these creative differences, you might want to turn the mirror on yourself because the creative differences are really just, um, you know, your your feet are dug in so hard. Um, what are they dug in so hard for? Because now you're losing out on new IP. Uh, that's canon as well, you know, that, that will be reportedly canon. I don't understand how that many people, as you listed all those names, kind of blew my mind. I forgot about half of them, that projects that never were. Um, it's sad. It's sad. Uh, it tells me that maybe we need to redefine either what direction we want Star Wars to go in from, from Disney's side, from Lucasfilm sides, or maybe we need to change who is in the seat yeah which is a which is a great point and i think it is something to be discussed because here's the thing i you know i've been saying this for a while really ever since the whole fallout with the last jedi which turned into what it turned into you know a very polarizing film with some very strong opinions and there are no shortage of insane variables that go into that from you know Russian bot troll bots, you know, taking the film. You've got all of these other factors factoring into like the polarization of that film. Um, but you know, this has been going on, and, and and people have sort of turned. The Star Wars fandom has become toxic in nature. I think people have sort of put that that label on the fandom. You know, usually it's just the loudest of the bunch that caused that to happen. 
But I, I don't, for that reason, I don't think it's a bad idea for them to step back from films for a little while because I think what John Favreau and Dave Filoni are doing on the TV side, the live action TV side, seems to be working. And if it continues to work for Book of Boba Fett and Ahsoka and Obi Wan Kenobi, then you're in a really good, safe little area of creativeness where you can sort of build things back up neutralize the fan base get things sort of ironed out to till where it's safe to make a film again but these kind of stories are not good for star wars on the whole and even though i don't think the sequel trilogy was as big a disaster as a lot of the very loud people do i think that what you ended up with are three films two of which i thought were good one of which i thought was mediocre but they don't fit together. And so, to your point, Kirk, I'm not one of these people who's been calling for Kathleen Kennedy's head because of the quality of the work, but I'm wondering if it might be necessary. I hate calling for people's jobs. I don't like doing right. that. Right, it's not fair. It's not right. fair, it's not, and it's not fair to her, to be honest, or really anybody in this situation, but if I was Bob Chapik or the higher-ups at at Disney, I would be considering that move just to hit the reset button on everything. You know, mm -hmm. not that you ever want to give in to the crazy toxic psychos, right? But this snowball is gaining momentum. And at some point, you have to just hit the big red button and say, listen, this is going to be best for all parties. We are going to just sort this out, get everybody back to even playing field and figure out what we have here. And, and I feel like we're quickly approaching that with this most recent batch of cancellations. Yeah, and I don't want her to get fired, but maybe reassigned. Maybe she has strengths in a different part of Lucasfilm's uh, that, that's there. Maybe she's not the problem. Maybe there's someone else. Maybe it's her right-hand uh, person. Maybe it's the creative team as a whole that they are, they are uh, you know, kind of an ensemble uh, of voting kind of pact that makes these decisions. So we shouldn't necessarily blame just her. Um, and I don't want to, but there's definitely something that has to move on Lucasfilm's side because it doesn't make sense that this many projects have come and gone and slipped through our fingers. It's it's kind of sad. If I was Disney and I didn't want to fire Kathleen Kennedy and I wanted to find another way to do it, I think, because because you make a good point, Kirk, like she shouldn't have to lose her job over this. She she maybe doesn't deserve it. We don't know what, what all is going on here. But the fandom consistently loves Dave Filoni. He was involved in the Clone Wars. He was involved in Star Wars Rebels. He has you know, been a part of the creative process for much of what is considered canon now in Star Wars, and and the fans pretty much unanimously love this guy. He was heavily involved in The Mandalorian. It was the him and John Favreau show. Like, he's got his fingers in everything. Give that guy the craziest, most senior title you can at Lucasfilm, yeah. and just put him in front of the camera for everything. You know, any interview, any whatever. Because I just think that if people felt like everything that happened with the sequel trilogy was coming from him, it would have it would be changed. And that's not fair, but it is it is the case. Like people he just had the trust of the fandom. And that's part of the reason I feel I mean, The Mandalorian is a good show, but I think people are more inclined to approach The Mandalorian with open eyes because it has his name on it 
and John mm-hmm. Favreau's name on it because John Favreau, you know, he did Iron Man and every, he will be forever beloved for Iron Man. So, um, man, it sucks. As a Star Wars fan, this, this this sucks to hear and I just don't know how they get out of it. It's really, it's really kind of sticky for them right now. Yeah, give him, give him either, make him the mascot or make him uh, Kevin Feige um, creative power um, and yeah. allow... Kathleen Kennedy, she's Kennedy, so you know she's got the business chops to destroy the world. So have her be that that partner. You know, you need a left and a right brain. I don't know which one she is, but something has to happen. Something yeah. has to happen. I, I can't let another um, glorious idea uh, project slip through our fingers again. That's just sad. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Well, we'll keep you guys posted on that as it develops. I mean, you know, none of none of the super major outlets have have corroborated this report but this you know matthew belloni belloni uh is very reputable so it's it appears to be legit he's he's very well sourced yes okay next up we're gonna talk about ridley scott but we're not gonna talk about the things that ridley scott is being talked about for right now because we'll we'll get to that but let's start with something that he's talking about (laughs) of substance he talked to the bbc and we already knew that there was an alien television show in the works at FX. Um, and we've been kind of hearing about that for a long time. It's one of these things that was like announced right around the time that COVID rolled in, but then everything went haywire. I doubt it's even in production at this point, you know? Um, so we knew that was coming, but he dropped a nugget that a Blade Runner television show is in the works okay. and that plots or what he's calling the Bible, you know, like, the truth of the story has been written for both shows and that both are expected to be he said the blade runner show would be 10 episodes is what they're playing what they're planning and that uh the the alien show would be eight to ten hours so probably in that 10 episode mark as well what are your thoughts on the blade runner television show kirk you have any interest in that I do. I do a lot. I remember uh, as, a, as a young lad, a teenager, one of my good friends show, sh- sat us all around in the living room and said, listen, you guys need to watch this movie. We can't be a theater group. This is how nerdy <laughs> this was. You, we can't be in a theater group and film lovers without seeing Blade Runner. We're going to watch Blade Runner together. And I understood none of it. None of it. And then I recently rewatched it and I, I watched the, the actual director's cut which filled in the proper pieces. I highly recommend still watching the theatrical version first to be confused, live that life, and then watch the director's cut for the relief of all of it too. So it's got so much um, intricacy. It's got so, so such great world building. And underneath all of that, the story that, that Ridley Scott gives us is just so powerful uh, about identity and about trust. And I think having that as a miniseries is fantastic. You can develop it in such a great way. Yeah. I, yeah, to your point, I, I've always heard, or I've often heard that the correct viewing order for Blade Runner is watch the original theatrical cut of Blade Runner then watch Blade Runner. It's it's called like the final cut or something That's like right. that. Yep. Watch that one and then watch Blade Runner 2049. And mm-hmm. because it gives you an appreciation for, you know, what people first saw, uh, which is, you know, to your point, a, a pretty muddled movie in some ways. Like it's hard to follow the, the narrative at times and, and keep your 
finger on the pulse of all the details, but it was way ahead of its time, Blade Runner. Mm. It's definitely essential cinema. And I think what's cool is like what we saw with Blade Runner 2049 under the direction of Denis Villeneuve, who is, you know, in for my money, the best sci-fi director we have right now. Um, <laughs> because it was ahead of its time, the technology caught up with it. And now we're able to build these really lavish, beautiful steampunk cyber uh futuristic post-apocalyptic type stuff it's just like the aesthetic in 2049 was so incredible and so visually appealing and amazing um so yeah i would say if the show can't achieve that like it gets a robust budget and it gets you know a network who can throw its weight behind it honestly would love to see apple tv plus do something like this or something because they have the dollars to make it happen um but if it looks good, I think it will. I think it will be really good because I think it really is suited for longer form narrative to really build out that world even more. Because even though it's a classic, the world really hasn't been built out that much. Yeah, there's so much more to explore. Like that would be super super neat to see them just expand expand upon that. Now is so if the Alien series is also not in production, which do you prefer, Cam? Which which would you be more excited, Blade Runner or Alien? Blade Runner. Yeah. I, so I'm fine with Alien, and I think some of those movies are great. I think, you know, the first few are really great, but I think, and I liked Prometheus, but that was whenever I decided I'm out. <laughs> you know, I was like, I've seen enough. Like, I like it, but it's just not always my cup of tea. Like, that movie was so intense and so gross. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, so I don't know, dark and I, I don't for whatever reason that that just did not. Even though I thought it was visually crazy and like really entertaining, I was like, I don't really need to see more of this world. I'm I'm kind of done here. Right. This would be a good chance for them to reboot it, um, to to change the grossness of it and get back to what the originals had was that they were just trying to survive. It was survival, but without the uh, the the kind of the gore desperation it kind of felt like they kept having to up the ante in that aspect i don't think they do i really don't i'm with you there for sure i wondered if you were going to pick alien just because i know you have a little bit of a love for monsters i do yeah yeah. no i do and i I like the original stuff and i'm excited that noah hawley is um helming it because he's done great things at fx and i really liked what i saw of legion though i didn't stick with that show it just you know timing and stuff like that but He's done some cool stuff, and I think he's got a, I think he's got a really interesting voice and, and, you know, perspective. So it'll be cool to sort of take things back to square one with Alien and scale it down a little bit, and um, it, it could be really cool. But I think Blade Runner is more of a slam dunk to me. I just feel like that will be a success. Almost, it's almost hard to mess up unless you yeah. just have terrible effects and terrible production design, which is possible. So good luck. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Don't screw it up. whoever gets it. I don't know if it will be FX or whatever. We'll see. A couple of really quick ones, just mostly casting news and and new movie news. So uh, Martin Scorsese, you know, he's been sort of bouncing around different studios. His next movie is going to be with Apple TV plus, and it's going to be a biopic about the grateful dead uh, starring Jonah Hill as Jerry Garcia. And I know nothing about The Grateful Dead. I'm not going to pretend like I do. I mean, I know that they've been around. I know that, like, they have a massive cult following. I once inadvertently attended Grateful Dead Night at a baseball game and, like, 
saw all the deadheads in the culture and I was like, hey man, that's cool. Like, do you. I'm glad you're happy with whatever decisions you're making. Like, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's Scorsese rematched with Jonah Hill, which they work together on Wolf of Wall Street. Jonah Hill has major chops and Scorsese is the greatest living director. So, um, Kirk, you're a Grateful Dead guy. How, I know you're the biggest Scorsese guy. How, how are you feeling about this one? Yeah, I mean, when you look at my Irish pale self, uh, you just know that I am a Grateful Dead fan. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can see by the, the... The shirt that you're wearing right now probably actually is a Grateful Dead shirt. It's got the skull with the lightning bolt I mean, on it. I, I just don't want to brag on how much I know about them or anything like that. I would say that even though initially this came as quite a shock that he would be directing this. If you look back at Scorsese's uh, filmography, you see some weird gems. He has directed yes. music videos. He has directed um, even The King of Co- Comedy with Robert De Niro. It's a strange offbeat film. Um, it's fantastic, but he does he does step into these little things that give us another piece of his mind, Mr. Crazy Martin Scorsese. So it's gonna be good no matter what, because what he, what he touches is gold. Um, but I don't know that I'll have the drive to necessarily see it because I don't know the Grateful Dead. I feel kind of bad that I don't know them. I'm like actually looking forward to learning about it through this movie. I think it's the perfect chance for me to be like I'm going to sit down and learn what this is all about. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Because I don't think I would otherwise. Like I'm not going to watch some sort of v- VH1 behind the music oh, on Grateful yeah. Dead. You know, I but I will watch Pop a, up video. Yep. I'll watch a potential you know I think it's safe to say, usually with Scorsese, it's safe to say, like, potential best picture nominee. I'll, you know, I'll mm-hmm. watch that for sure and and learn about it. Plus, it's Jonah Hill. I'm a huge fan of what, what he does. So it'll be interesting. And that's Deadline reporting that. What if we see it and it turns our podcast into no longer a movie review podcast? We become but a deadheads. Dead. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Love fest if every that's, week. You know, I love that journey for us. If that, if that's the if that's the one that chooses us, you know, we can we can make that turn. We'll dissect the lyrics <laughs> to every song, of like one an episode, or you know, we can only get through one verse because they're so layered. Yeah, yeah, the right. songs. Uh, I, I think this is a good path for us. It could be. That'll be the night. That'll be the spinoff podcast. <laughs> uh, next up, interesting one. Michael Keaton, he's doing press for a few different things right now. I think most recently, probably Dope Sick is what he's yeah. uh, promoting, which is a Hulu series. Uh, Kirk, I believe, is a is a pretty big fan of it so far. Yes. Um, he went on Kimmel, you know, as one does when they're when they're making the rounds for press tour and things like that. And he said that he he just sort of in passing was you know they were chatting about his experience with Marvel and he was like. Yeah, I'm actually I'm shooting some some stuff tomorrow, some vulture stuff, and basically said that he was shooting more more vulture stuff, which just keep me in check here, Kirk. Like this has to be for some Sony non MCU project, right? Because like he Morbius is probably close to done, and No Way Home we know is. I Complete. mean, he's not he's not filming for No Way Home, <laughs> you know, but. I don't see him returning to the MCU in any other capacity. I feel like this would have to be Sony's Spider-Man universe of films. Huh. That is fascinating. And the only way it could be 
No Way Home is if he they are suddenly had a brilliant move for a post credit scene with him. That's the only way. But it, it seems a little too late. They, I mean, I I feel like the film sets, the reels are at the theaters right now. By the way, we should probably go try to like break it and watch it. Second, if it is just Vulture, is it Sinister Six? I mean, sure, it could be. Like, we know he's in Morbius because they show him in the trailer. Mm-hmm. So he's definitely involved in that world. But, you know, I know that Tom Holland had mentioned that at some point they were talking about doing a Vulture movie when they were trying to pick up the pieces after the Marvel. When the Marvel Sony thing went down, like the, the Disney Sony thing went down, apparently, <laughs> you know... Uh, Tom Holland was meeting with Amy Pascal at at Sony and they were trying to brainstorm like what do we do to pick up the pieces here and that was one of the ideas that they threw out but I don't I, I can't really see that so I'm intrigued maybe it's Craven the Hunter we know that movie's in the works he could be appearing in that so maybe it's him doing some sort of Nick Fury Sinister Six <laughs> recruiting of oh, some sorts I like that yeah I don't see a standalone Vulture movie no. uh, even with the incredibleness of Michael Keaton, I just don't see that it carries. Yeah, I think we just we've had so much of his story, his origin already with Homecoming that mm-hmm. it's like, and his his origin is also tied to the MCU uh, because it involves the Avengers, you know, Battle of New York situation. So that's a little bit fuzzy in terms of how Sony handles that. So, but anyway, it's happening. Who knows what it is? But <laughs> we'll keep our eyes mm-hmm. on it. And sticking in Marvel, but going over to the MCU, uh, The Hollywood Reporter is reporting that Delroy Lindo has joined the cast of Blade. This is notable because it's only the second casting that's been announced for Blade, and Blade isn't even in production yet. So you'd have to imagine it's it's some sort of significant role, but uh, you know when you start to try to put the tea, you know, read the tea leaves or put the pieces together, it's really hard to figure out what character this would be. But I think it's pretty exciting nonetheless. Very exciting. I mean, Delroy Lindo is, is really just getting his getting his credit finally. It took yeah, a while. It did. It took quite it did. a while. The Five Bloods was what turned the tide, you know, last year. And now everybody's like, oh yeah, this guy's insanely good. He you know, he's been around, <laughs> he's incredible. Let's put him in everything. And for that, I'm so I'm I'm grateful. I, th- I say go for it. Just load it yeah. up. Load up his schedule. It's- it's inspiring, you know. You you often think of you know Morgan Freeman on the Electric Company, and then all of a sudden, um, just uh, sixty years old became the world's uh, household name. You know, yeah, same, yeah. same thing. Delroy's on the same path, and I feel like we could do that one day on, on days where we only get one like to an incredible yeah, yeah. Um, social media post. I feel like that's just motivation for you know six years down the line where we where we're gonna have a hundred thousand likes on a single <laughs> post. That's right. Rise and grind. It's bulletin board material there. Manifest. You do your push-ups while looking at the one like that you got on your social post and <laughs> looking at pictures of like Delroy Lindo, <laughs> Morgan Freeman. I think the one that people always say is that like, and I have no idea how close to true this is, uh, Ariana Huffington started the Huffington Post when she was like 70 years old or something like that. And then it was like <gasps> ginormous. So, what? right. Don't let your dreams be dreams. In the words of Shia LaBeouf, don't let your dreams be dreams. <laughs> Yesterday, you said tomorrow. <laughs> All right. Just 
do it. <laughs> Finally, what to watch this week? There's a couple of things. Like we said, it's a good it's a good uh, week for content. Encanto. This is the Colombian film. Well, it's it's a movie based in Colombia by Disney Animation Studios, featuring original songs from Lin Manuel Miranda. He's he has become the golden goose laying the golden eggs for Disney lately, and I think that that's been a pretty uh, substantial and good investment on on Disney's part because that dude, everything he touches turns to gold. Um, Hawkeye, first two episodes drop on Disney Plus this Wednesday, the 24th. And Venom, Let There Be Carnage is available on VOD for rental tomorrow, Tuesday, November 23rd. So if you're behind on any of that stuff or, you know, looking to go watch some content over your, your long weekend, those are three good options for you. Definitely. All right, let's pop it up one last time as we move into our review. And our review this week is, as we mentioned at the outset, Tick, Tick, Boom, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And I have the honor of synopsing this film this week, so we'll get right into it. So, Tick, Tick, Boom is a film adaptation of a musical that was created by Jonathan Larson, who is the creator of the musical Rent and went on to win Tony Awards and a Pulitzer Prize uh, posthumously for his work on on that show. And Jonathan Larson wrote this musical, Tick, Tick, Boom, as an autobiographical account of his life up to his 30th birthday, or really... Not necessarily his life, but just the recent happenings of his life as he's approaching 30 and is reflecting on things, uh, you know, just kind of talking about what he's learned. So it's a really interesting show for a lot of reasons. I think, you know, as a musical theater fan, <laughs> this show feels like the show that every playwright, you know, musical theater person, you know, people who write musicals likes to make. This is this musical is like very Sondheim. It reminds me of Company uh, by Sondheim and Jonathan Larson, Jonathan Larson's music is obviously heavily influenced by Stephen Sondheim. You can hear it in everything that he does. Um, but it's also interesting because there are some sort of very obvious parallels between Lin-Manuel Miranda and Jonathan Larson in terms of their career trajectory. And so to have Lin-Manuel Miranda directing this as his first film uh, is very is very exciting and, and, and really helps weave the narrative together. But the basic premise of the story is that Jonathan Larson is turning 30 years old and feels like he has nothing to show for it. He's been working on a musical for the last eight years. He's hyper ambitious and is ready for his big break. And sort of as he's approaching what he believes is his big break, the um, you know, he finally gets a, what do they call it? Like some sort of uh, workshop or, or performance uh, for right. his musical. All of these other things start to happen and the, the pressure is sort of mounting. His relationship with his girlfriend is sort of, you know, reached a fork in the road. He's got a best friend who's going through some health issues and it helps him to sort of scope out and get perspective on his life and, and, and to learn what it really means to be a writer and what it means to be a person and a friend and a boyfriend and all these things. Um, so it's just a really good human story at its core. And what, what's really interesting about it, I think, and I'll, I'll bring Kirk back into the picture here too, so we can kind of talk about it a little bit, but, um, it's so perfect as a film adaptation because 
it's a bio, you know, you can use this musical as a biopic about a guy who wrote musicals. So it's, it's really exceptionally perfect. I, I doubt that Jonathan Larson had that in mind whenever he created it, but it sets up a really perfect framework for telling his story through a musical on film. And so Lin-Manuel saw that opportunity and, and took it because he has been heavily inspired by Jonathan Larson. But what, what did you think overall just about the concept? Yeah, you know, one of the hardest things to watch sometimes is a musical being adapted into film. It's For a sure. very difficult jump. I mean, Dear Evan Hansen is still 19.99 on VOD because it's trying to recoup some money from the theaters. Um, it's 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 hard. Mm-hmm. It is so hard. I can't imagine what it, what it looks like. But if you have the concept for it, if you have the vision for it, then you're good to go. This right here, blueprint laid, done. It's already there. You have full visual flexibility because it's very it's very just open. It's very abstract. It's very um, t- uh, tipping of the hat. Like, hey, look at what I'm doing here. Like those those things all play into it. I, I absolutely loved it. It took me a while to really understand. Um, not in a while. It took me about half an hour to be like, oh, wait a second. I get it. I really get it uh, because I've never seen this musical. Right. Um, I would love to. Um, and I didn't really know a lot about it, even though I know a lot about Jonathan Larson, a lot of the stuff in all the factoids about him. I knew some of those, but I mean, it, it really was a perfect blueprint for for musicals to come and definitely a biopic translation onto film. Well, yeah, because they can, they, you know, they can't. So the musical never did the rounds on Broadway. Tick, tick, boom. Never did. It, it did. It, you know, it had a few different runs with a few different groups doing their interpretation of it. It did a little off Broadway type stuff, yeah. but it was never, you know, it was, it always had sort of a cult following because of its tie to Jonathan Larson post rent and post his death, but it never really was big. So most people haven't seen it or are familiar with it, but the way that they use it and what I think Kirk's kind of referencing there is like, they use the musical portion of it as a narrator, as a narration tool. You know, the the actual dialogue and songs from the musical are used as narration while they show you what's happening in the real world, or I'm saying with air quotes, if you can hear that, uh, Mm -hmm. which is really like the filmed portion of him going through these things. It's really, it's pretty crafty. It's, it's a perfect way to go about it in my opinion. So without further ado, let's get into it. Um, we're going to start with our Oscar, as we always do. Our Oscar goes to, and my Oscar goes to, obviously, <laughs> Andrew Garfield, who stars as Jonathan Larson in this film. And to give it away to anybody else would immediately tip my hand that I did not like this movie because the whole this whole universe that has been created in this movie revolves around Jonathan Larson and Andrew Garfield's interpretation of this character or this person, and he does an incredible job. I mean, I th- it's it's one of those things where people would look at it and say, this is similar to characters that Andrew Garfield has played before, so it doesn't necessarily accentuate his range as an actor. It's not necessarily a super transformative performance, but it is an extremely layered performance, and part of that is because the way that Lin-Manuel Miranda as a director chose to tell this story was to not paint Jonathan Larson as anything larger than life. He really, really wanted to paint him as human 
So and and give us all the information about him and give us all the information about what he went through so that we could form our own judgments on him and the choices that he's made with his relationships, etc. Um, but also so that we could see him as a person and a human being and so that we could see ourselves in him. And so because of that, it becomes a much more complex uh, narrative and, and, and um, character study for, for Andrew Garfield. And he took a really grounded but really studious approach to it, as Andrew Garfield tends to do. I think if you've seen his previous work, you know that he is exceptionally detailed in his craft, and this was no exception to that. But, I mean, um, all of it. The physical acting, I think, is what stands out above the rest. I mean, that's where you can sort of call this transformative in a way because he really, when they show the clips at the end of Jonathan Larson. Um, in his real life, in all of these settings that they show in the film, the physical acting is absolutely spot on. He's he's totally got his his walk, his mannerisms, um, the way he carries himself, the, you know, the sort of like loosey goosey way that he moves about as a free spirit. I mean, he's totally got that captured. And then you know the obvious things, like I said, this person throughout the course of this story goes through lots of stressful situations and has to show and tell us how he's feeling at different points, either verbally or non-verbally, and Andrew Garfield balances it all so well. I mean, I think that this is a... This is an Oscar... Well, a legit Oscar, not one of me and Kirk's Oscars. This is a legit Oscar nomination-worthy performance. I Again, I don't know if he will win because it's not the sort of transformative performance you tend to see win Oscars, but it is definitely one that's worthy of recognition, like it is that good, so... That's my pick, Andrew Garfield. It's beautiful. What if I just like came in and was like, you know what, Lin Manuel when he was the uh, the chef in the diner, I feel like that that was it. That You're like, I'm going to go Oscar with moment. Bradley Whitford, who played Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> yes, who just grumbled a couple of times and rubbed his chin. He stole it. He stole the show. Um, Andrew Garfield. Andrew freaking Garfield. This guy. If you do not know this name, if you have not known his work. I'm yelling at you. I, I just can't believe you can exist in this world. Um, I was first introduced to Andrew Garfield on Heath Ledger's last film or partial film, if you will, uh, Dr. Parnassus Imaginarium. And uh, Andrew Garfield, he doesn't play one of the iterations of Heath Ledger, but he plays someone who is accompanying him on this journey and um, basically trying to escape him as Heath Ledger's, char- Heath Ledger's character goes kind of mad when he goes into uh, into the mirror and into that mirror verse and craziness. Andrew Garfield, master, master actor. What I loved in this performance above anything else is you can see the elements, the epiphany moments. As an actor, when you get into a role, you're trying to study, you're trying to find what part of you meshes with that character. Why were you seen by the casting director, by the creative team to say, listen, this role, no matter what, it's Andrew Garfield. It's it's incredible to see a couple of those moments uh, click. Uh, one of the easiest ones is when he's hugging his friend, his best friend Michael. The way they hug, they don't just like hug. Uh, they have a couple of like normal like like friendly embraces, but they just like throw their hands on each other's shoulders, and it doesn't look forced. Like this is how they communicate. Uh, having that uh, built into their relationship is so critical. Like uh, no one else does that, but it's so it seems so natural for them to do so. Um, 
uh, a lot of what Jonathan Larson, uh, as we see through Andrew Garfield, was about touch because he was so good at understanding humans and humans human needs if you will you can see he is the the glue to all of his friends we see andrew garfield like checking in on them um and not trying to pass them off until he's in those moments of oh my gosh uh, my life is falling apart i have to get this show i have to write this song i have to make this musical um and then he then you see the deep regret uh th- that runs into that as well but I love so much. Uh, there's also a moment where he goes to hug Ira, who's backing his workshop, and he hesitates to hug him. And then there's like a quick hug. He's like, no, I, you need this love, and I need you, and, and let's band together. There's just an infectious joy that's brought about in this particular role uh, from Andrew Garfield, who walks the walk and talks the talk and sings the song. A fun fact about Andrew Garfield, he did not know he could sing before this uh before this performance um it sounds like he did a lot of casual singing but never on purpose intentional singing but got trained for over a year from the from some of the best in the biz and here we are just left with an incredible performance don't you don't you hate that so just a little bit like i love andrew garfield yeah like he's like I'm not sure if I can sing and all of a sudden we have just this incredible (laughs) glorious just like I mean, you would have you would have thought that he was singing took singing lessons since he was like four. Uh, it's un, it's unreal. It's unreal. Andrew Garfield for the win. Yeah, it's really unfair for so many reasons. I mean, he's he's got a very rich tone to his voice, but he's also you know Jonathan Larson was sort of pushing the boundaries of the musical genre, pushing it more towards a you know a rock type. You know, it was the '90s, so. He was pushing it more towards, you know, what was popular, um, you know, which was mostly grunge and alternative rock. And not that this musical is grunge by any means, but like pushing it towards that direction. And Andrew Garfield's voice has a very natural uh, rockiness to it, if Mm -hmm. you will. You know, not, you know, he is able to sort of control his voice in the way that many really great rock singers can and you're just listening to it like man what can't this guy do <laughs> it's it's incredible he sounds so great you know and he's singing up next to people like Vanessa Hudgens who's been doing this her entire life and who's exceptionally good and holding his own and it's just like wow you know really really well really well done yes all right let's move into scene stealer let's talk about the supporting cast a little lean on the supporting cast side in terms of just the number of characters who of substance really um but for me i'm probably going with the most you know the the second most primary character in the whole show which would be um alexandra ship she plays susan which is uh jonathan larson's girlfriend and i think this goes back to you know why i think her performance is so good is that this goes back to um what i said about lin-manuel miranda wanting to paint jonathan larson as a human and not like one of these larger than life hero type characters, because Susan, because of the story, you know, they're sort of positioned as in an adversarial sort of state because she is wanting him to decide if he wants her to be a part of his life or if he's not going to be able to make time for her. And she's trying to decide if she should stick around for, for him or if she should go and pursue a steady career. It's something that, you know, we have seen in stories. It's something that happens in relationships from time to time, but 
because of that, if Lin-Manuel Miranda had, you know, taken the choice of being like Jonathan Larson is unequivocally right in this story and he's the hero, he's our protagonist, um, it would have been easy for Susan to just sort of like take some cues, let her character be a little bit more of that, you know, adversary antagonist type role, but she didn't get to do that. She had to create a character that people could really, you know, who could be on the opposite of the protagonist, which most people still to this day want, you know, they feel a natural, they want to side with the protagonist just naturally. So she had to create a character to where it was opposite of the protagonist, but not an antagonist, not somebody who is wrong and someone that people can really listen to and hear and feel. And she did that by, by giving great human emotions to her character and coming from a position of where Susan probably was in the real mix of this, which is a position of, I love you, but this isn't working. How can we make this work? And, um, it was just, it was great. And I thought that her, the way that her and Andrew Garfield played scenes together was stellar from the beginning. Uh, you know, even in the scenes where they weren't arguing and things like that, um, it was just really well done and it felt very genuine. It felt like a very genuine relationship and that warmth was, was there from the beginning. Whenever you first meet this character, you don't even know that they're in any sort of relationship. He's just sort of talking to her in a bookstore and yet there's this, there is this immediate sense of, you know, comfort in their body language and the way that they interact with each other that whenever you find out a couple minutes later that they're together, you're like, I already knew that, you know, because it's just really, it's well acted and well done. And Lin-Manuel Miranda really kind of pushes her out of her comfort zone. It's at times I would imagine, because at some point uh, when Vanessa Hudgens is singing come to your senses, which is like the big musical number he wrote for the female character, it switches over to her because it's Jonathan Larson is seeing it as Susan singing the song to him. And Lin-Manuel being himself makes it like a, a 90s R&B video. It's like very over the top, like wind through her hair, funny lighting. And she just totally leans into it and owns it. And it feels like you're watching, I don't know, like Destiny's Child or <laughs> Christina Aguilera from, or like JoJo from back in the day or something like that. This like ballad with all of this crazy 90s aesthetic to it. And she just did a great job. So, um, at every turn, I was I was pleasantly surprised and thought she did excellent, and I think she's got a really bright future ahead of her. Alexandra Ship. Yes, Alexandra Ship played Storm in the uh, X Men. That's reboot. right. Yeah, she was so, great. Yeah, probably very easy to have wind blowing in her face while she was. Singing, <laughs> she's like, you know? yeah, man, I'm Storm. Let's go. <laughs> I'm going to go a very different route for Scene Stealer. Um, I don't know if this is even fair, um, but I don't care. This is what I'm going to choose. <laughs> wow. I think that, you know, we had a, a pillar three, you know, three of, of our triangle, Andrew Garfield, Alexander Ship, and we had Robin De Jesus, who originated the role of Sonny in the original cast of In Heights, the musical. He sure did. That's he awesome. Sure did. Um, but I've got to say, in in the most, in the truest sense of scene stealer, you, when... Joshua Henry, who is playing one of the three performers of Tick Tick Boom, as we're as we're going through uh, the the song cycle and through the biography of Jonathan Larson's life, John, Joshua Henry, it's him, Vanessa Hudgens, and Andrew Garfield. He just he is so infectious. He is just 
I just, <laughs> I don't know what it is. I cannot look away from him. He has got just this, uh, this voice with no limits. It there's no ceiling to it. There's no bottom to it. He can just, I think he could solve, uh, world hunger. I think he could solve <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, Josh. <laughs> I think he could call, he could really give us world peace. Um, he also played um, Aaron Burr in a, in a long run of Hamilton, uh, I believe. Which I Los mean, in- like, come on, duh, right? Like he, like him and Leslie Odom, like their voices are very similar, right? And there's just something about him that he's he's so fearless in this performance. Like he is singing about some of the most ridiculous things you've ever heard about, you know, with the, with the aliens, quote unquote aliens. Right. But the, the futuristic um, ties to to separating our, ourselves from from humanity and all these really intricate, intricate lyrics. And he is just destroying it with the biggest smile on his face. Or if it's not, he is really like diving into what you, all those words are and what they mean. Um I mean, he probably had one or two words of dialogue, if that, and I just had to pick him because I couldn't keep my eyes off him. He is just absolutely incredible. Good pick. I really liked that three. I thought Vanessa Hudgens did great too. She wasn't in as big a role as you would expect, but I thought she did a really good job. So yes, good pick. Good pick. All right. This is Lin-Manuel Miranda's directorial debut as far as feature films. We know he's directed musicals, but in terms of a feature film, this is his first shot. So let's dig into the product that he gave us. Let's talk about what was good, what was bad, and let's let's get into it. So for me, for Showstopper, so the good side of the coin, um, I think what I really liked about it is how Lin-Manuel Miranda was able to do he understood that there are certain things that only someone like him could bring to this movie as someone who writes musicals and someone who, you know, he like, he is another Jonathan Larson. So there are, there is a certain perspective that he can bring that nobody else can bring. And I was really proud of him for just leaning into that and saying, this is what's going to be the unique stamp on this movie is that I can provide a color that is so authentic, so genuine, so real that nobody else can say because they haven't lived it. Um, And he did that. You know, he showed what it's like to be someone who creates, who is a creator. You know, he shows the creative process, which sometimes includes bouncing a balloon on a frying pan or doing pull-ups from the, you know, the doorframe and things like that because there is a procrastination perspective of that. He shows how those sorts of people struggle in relationships because their mind is all over the place. He shows the inside of the mind where, you know, you know, I can, I I relate to this to an extent, even though I'm not a, I'm not what you would consider a typical creative, but I often feel, you know, that whole thought of like tick, tick, boom. I feel like the clock's always ticking and I have all these ideas and I'm trying to piece them together. It just like felt so super relatable. And I'm sure there are plenty of people listening who, if not everybody who understands that as well, but Lin-Manuel Miranda just did it in such a way that it was, you know that it was real and genuine because it was impossible to make these things up <laughs> that he was doing. And then also his commentary on the theater community was really interesting. And it was less so a commentary as much as it was, this is what the theater communities really look like. Here's the good, here's the bad, here's the weird. Um, and you decide for yourself what you think of that. You know, the like the intricacies of the friendships that they had, the 
the business side of it, you know, doing auditions and the producers and, and, and trying to get your show purchased. And then also the side where, you know, artists struggling between, can I be an artist or, or do I have to go into business and do something else? And also criticizing artists for being so self-righteous about what they do to think that they're above what other people do in the real world. I mean, he just laid it all out there. He was, he was like, here's my perspective. I'm not going to give a firm take, but I'm going to give you everything you need to know about this world so that you can judge it at face value with all the info. And I thought that that was really cool. Usually I like directors to give an opinion. And in this case, I wasn't really thirsting for that. In this case, Lin-Manuel Miranda was able to give us all of the inside information so that we can make an opinion for ourselves on this world and on this story and what it means. And I thought that that was more valuable than him saying, this is how I feel about it. So that was really cool. I echo all of that, all of it. It was so, it was so great. Uh, that's pretty much my exact take. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll extrapolate on it a little bit. Um, I also want to talk about one of my favorite scenes, um, aside from the opening number, which is just incredible. You like, you cannot, you cannot put a more perfect um, ensemble sequence together uh, in, a, in a musical setting. It was perfect, pitch perfect. Um, but my favorite scene is when he's swimming. It's near the end of the movie, um, just before the final punch that we that we learn about uh, about Michael and his HIV status is that he that Andrew Garfield goes swimming uh, and all of a sudden he's touching the bottom of the pool and he on he suddenly sees music notes and things are clear right because water is very cleansing uh, it's it's a very easy tool to use in film because you don't even know that it's being thrusted on you until after it's happened because you get a rain scene you know you have someone going through a whole bunch of stuff you get a rain scene they're screaming they're crying but they're being cleansed they're being washed of whatever is happening in their lives at that moment and, and giving a, a fresh start. So just like Andrew Garfield is like, man, I'm, I gotta, I gotta swim. This is what I gotta do. This is my peaceful place. And then he can under the water, even though he's like working hard, he's swimming hard. He's going crazy. Uh, I watched this movie with my wife. She's like, I wish I could swim like that one day. I was like, you can, you can. And he's, he gets to the bottom and he kind of brushes off the dust and the dirt and the water in, in its very sense is cleaning that away so that he can see clearly that he can swim clearly. He see he sees music notes along the pattern uh, of the tile of the pool. And it looks like that they were musical cl uh, clefts and he can see the actual, the, the music notes that he he wants in his melody of his song that he's waiting to write and it's so so cool it's so incredible um and because he had that through line in the rest of the film echoing back to what you were talking about that we got to see in his brain we got to see these little scribbles kind of like in the background and like just like next to us you see a little bit of it uh, that it's like it almost looks like a chalkboard but it was a notebook of his mind of putting it all together of just keeping it there so he could grab it at any time and then reference it and use it into his life or his musicals which were in a way in Jonathan Larson's book one and the same um, so when we see this world of of the the theater community and how everything is a song uh, all, all all the way to um, you know he's he's trying to reconcile with Susan where they had a big fight they're trying to figure out their future and he starts playing the piano on her back. And she's like, are you making this moment into a song? She gets ticked. She gets absolutely ticked. And he's like, Oh no. <laughs> he's like, my creative genius is also my downfall. Uh, I, I love that. I love the whole Sunday sequence um, where we, where we see just, uh, just 
every single <laughs> musical theater cameo there is. And because of Lin-Manuel's connection and success and also love for this community, he was able to pull, pull that through as a through line as well um, to, to really show us um, how it echoes uh, one particular moment when he, when he gets to play his song for Steven Sondheim the first time is that we see this, this, uh, this sliding view of all these students and those are actually recipients of the Jonathan Larson uh, scholarship, um, including Alex Lacamoire, who would go on to uh, music, who'd be the musical director uh, of Hamilton uh, and more. So it's all, all of the details of this movie really will blow your mind when you start digging into them and understanding the the specificity of how much he wanted to show that the the life of theater. Uh, as cheesy as it is, it really is everywhere. You can find it everywhere. And when you live that life, like Jonathan Larson lived of, I'm going to make, um, I'm going to make the most passionate thing about mine ingrained into my life, because that's how I know the only way I know how to live. And then you really saw his success. Superbia, you know, it was a stepping stone, but it allowed him. It was an exercise, as he says in the movie. I have these exercises to help me write songs. It was an exercise to get him to tick, tick, boom, to get him to rent. Beautiful. Love it. Great nuggets all around there, Kirk. Um, Thank you. Let's move on to the other side. Directorial debuts always have a few bumps. We'll see. We'll see if that's the case for Lin-Manuel, who can seemingly do no wrong. But I'll get started with my director shoes. I have a few notes for this movie. Um, I think the, the, the intro and outro of the movie could use some work. It was a little bit clunky in terms of there's this narr there's this narration tool, which I believe is Alexandra ship. Who's doing the voiceover talking about Jonathan Larson, um, at the beginning and you know, the whole, like, this is the story of Jonathan Larson. Like that, that whole bit felt like we didn't need to do that. They could have started with the musical and, and they could have, and I don't know exactly how to do it, but making the audience feel more comfortable with the bounce between the musical and the what's happening in real life earlier, getting us a sense of a grounding on what exactly they're doing there would be helpful. Because to your, I think you even mentioned it earlier, Kirk, that like it took a little bit to figure out what they were doing where like chronologically <laughs> in the story because they kept bouncing back between this performance of the musical and then what's actually happening in real life uh, per se. And so it would have been helpful to sort of iron that out earlier. And I just felt like the, the intro and outro felt different from the rest of the movie because that narration tool that they built in there and like the little cut scenes and stuff like that of Jonathan Larson, like it just didn't really exactly fit the rest of the aesthetic aesthetic and tone of the movie. So I feel like that could have been helped to iron out. Um, I think mentioning the death of Jonathan Larson at the beginning is a narrative mistake. I think that there is probably a, a personal reason that Lin-Manuel did that. I think it was probably because he, you know, as someone who was inspired by Jonathan Larson and understands him to a certain extent, he didn't want it to feel like he was exploiting his death for dramatic effect. And I can certainly on a personal level understand that, but on a cynical level of this is a entertainment product and a narrative, the effect is so much stronger for people who don't know this story. And to be honest, like 
the mainstream probably doesn't know this story or large parts of it. You know, like if you go up to an average person and say, hey, you know, are you a fan of Jonathan Larson? A lot of people might be like, who, what, who, what are you talking about? So the effect could have been really potent at the end when you go, you have this thesis running through the movie of, I hear this sound in my mind, like a ticking, you know, like a clock in a, or like a bomb in a movie where the wick is burning down. And then you go to the point where, oh, he died young. He died the day before his big crowning achievement went on Broadway. Like that effect is powerful. And, and it brings into focus, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like he knew that his time really was short, similar to Alexander Hamilton. Again, there's the comparisons there, but um, it would have been more effective that way. And then finally, like, I'm trying to figure out how to word this in a way. I feel like in a way I'm punishing Lin-Manuel for good behavior. <laughs> like he's been such a visionary and such a creative that I wanted more in this movie. And and I'm not talking about, I thought the narrative was good. I thought the music was good. I thought the way that he tied it together was good. But visually I wanted more because I felt like there was more there for him to do visually. And I know that he has a very specific eye. And I felt like a lot of the, choices he made for shots and things like that were derivative of things that people have done in the past. Like even the notes floating in the air next to his head, even the scene where he pushes the diner wall down, like it felt these dreamscapes felt derivative of what certain movie musicals have done in the past. And I just, I wanted more Lin-Manuel flavor in the visual aesthetic of the movie and didn't feel like I totally got that. Maybe, maybe that is what he had. And that's, that's just it. But I just know that he has such an extreme creative eye. And so I was expecting visually for there to be more storytelling and, and more of a consistent aesthetic that was really different and new and fresh. And I didn't really get that. So I feel like this movie, when you look at it years down the line, um, will you say, oh man, that movie sticks out because of this look or this feel or this one scene where they did this really cool thing. And I I don't really know that this movie has that. And maybe that's not a fair criticism and, and that's fine, but it is, it is a criticism of mine. So I'll leave it at that for my director's shoes. That is very funny that I thought the opening and outro were perfect. <laughs> thought they were perfect. Well, I thought the Cam. musical number was good. Okay. It's just, it I was just you. the narration, how it was layered into there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I still liked it. I don't know what it is. I still liked it. Um, it didn't, I guess it didn't bother me. Um, but I, I hear every point that you say about it. That makes perfect sense. I didn't see it that way when I watched it. Um, I'm, well, I'm going to watch it again. And I'm going to be like, you Alexander, no. shit. you <laughs> shut your mouth. Let me figure it out. No, no, she did great. She did great. Um, the, the thing about the medium of musicals to movie is that it's always a pacing issue, always, every time. And it's always a, a sound design issue because it feels like there's so much empty, quiet space mm. in musicals on film. And because of that, like the words are important, but there's no, there's no ambient sounds. There's no score of anything else because the songs are written. You know, you can't play anything kind of low and underneath without people thinking you're going to break into song at any given moment. And I feel like there needs to be 
a better way to fix that. This one had a significant uh, high count of of songs, so there was not a lot of those awkward silences. But even specifically in you know you watched the the film uh, uh, the film Rent uh, with the original most of the original cast, and there's like all these moments where you're going along, you get this momentum, and then you break into a scene briefly, and it's like. Man, it's like really quiet. Mm-hmm. And that goes down to the sound design behind it, where there, there's not something that's like motivating the background. Like we have great stuff on paper for them to say. We've already hear, heard them sing. We're going to hear them sing again. But there's just this emptiness that you can kind of feel. And your head is just kind of like open. And you're like, wait a second. I'm watching a movie. <laughs> uh, whereas when you're on stage, um, you're like glued to their words in a different way that that doesn't translate the same as when it's on film. I don't know how to fix that. I do not know how to fix that. And I would say that this is the best version of that that I've seen where even though I could acknowledge it, I wasn't annoyed by it like I have been and will be in the future by other um, musicals adapted to screen. So I would say that would be my biggest director's shoes because with someone with such a key and creative and masterful ear as Lin-Manuel Miranda, I would have hoped that there would have been a little bit less of that. Um, so I'm mad at him. I'm really mad at him about it. And that's <laughs> all I got to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I like the point that you made about like, you don't, they don't feel like they can keep music going underneath the scenes and dialogue because it feels like you're in a musical and the band's vamping for the next chorus. <laughs> and I totally get that. I think it's definitely true. There has to be, to your point, there has to be some sort of middle ground to, to even that out, but nobody seems to have cracked the code yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and God help us, if Lin-Manuel Miranda can't crack the code, then we're in we're in tough shape, Kirk. I mean, this just might That's be it. how we have to be for the rest of our lives. Um, I don't know. But <laughs> let's jump into final thoughts and scores on Tick, Tick, Boom. Man, I, I have to say, I find it... I have bounced around between so many scores because here's the thing. I really, really enjoy this movie. And, and I think it's exceptionally entertaining and highly rewatchable. Um and it's it's highly I've, I've watched it twice actually for <laughs> to that point, um, but I think it's highly rewatchable because the songs are really good, and the movie has this really good uh, I, I want to call it like kinetic energy around it, right? Like there's just a lot of motion and sound, and the camera's moving and the people are moving and there's dance, you know, things like that are just really they're eye candy. Whenever you have even if the visuals themselves are not the most superb. I thought the visuals were good. They're just, there could have been more to my earlier point, but there, it's just, it's just a really dynamic kinetic kind of piece of art, which is a nice thing to watch. You know, if you can't, things that are super rewatchable are not things where there's tons of heavy dialogue and people just standing around talking like this thing has great music. It's got fun, dynamic scenes. Uh, it's, it's just got a lot. It's got high emotional, uh, you know, big emotions in it with, good emotional scenes and resolution and and you know it's a when there's high drama in movies like this and the emotions are genuine and human it's a very cathartic experience to watch it and and feel the big emotions and let yourself get involved in the film emotionally and um it just makes for a really enjoyable watch i have some i have some gripes with it that that i called out earlier in terms of how it's how it's structured, but overall, I think it's it's really really well well done. Um, I don't know that it will have 
the mass appeal <laughs> that some other movie musicals have because it just feels like a very specific story. And if you're not someone who's involved, who, who has a love for musical theater on the whole in general, this may not be overly compelling to you, but I do think it's, it's really an effective movie. Um, it just has a few issues here and there, but I love the music. thought the acting was for the most part, really, really good. And I, I love, um, as a fan of musical theater, I love how they, they have linked the careers through this movie of Stephen Sondheim, Jonathan Larson, and Lin-Manuel Miranda together because it's really a beautiful thing and it shows you this generational uh, transition of these really intelligent people who have changed the face of musical theater forever. So it's really effective and really rich whenever you get down to it. It just has a few executional things that I think will hurt its staying power in terms of, you know, it being an iconic movie for years and years and years to come. So I'm giving it an 8.5 out of 10. And I thought it was really good. And uh, we'll see, you know, I think it will be a fringe best picture candidate. It could be one of those ones that sneaks in there. I don't necessarily see it as a front runner, but I do see it potentially um, getting some acclaim. And, and at this point, and there's a lot of movies still to come, guys. But I would say at this point, the Andrew Garfield performance in this movie is uh, among the the best that I've seen so far this year. So at this point, I would be shocked to see him not get nominated. But um, we'll see what the Academy says. So 8.5 out of 10 for me on Tick, Tick, Boom. Kirk, you're That's up. Pretty. That's pretty. Yeah, could we see, you know, there haven't been many uh, times that this has happened, but could we see... Andrew Garfield get nominated for Best Actor and possibly Best Supporting uh, for the Eyes of Tammy Faye in the same year. Could be. Be pretty wild. Even wilder if he won both of them. That would be wild. I would appreciate that. I would appreciate the Andrew Garfield love because he's in, he's a scholar and a gentleman. I think what's so cool about any... Uh, <laughs> Any movie made about Jonathan Larson, there are two. There's this and Rent. <laughs> <laughs> Any movie, you know, of the of the several two that have happened, um, they ha- they fell into that same pacing gap uh, where you have this these big moments, these big lively active scenes, these very creative explosions of energy and celebration of life to the darkest moments in other people's lives. I mean, you get the full spectrum uh, of joy to despair. And sometimes it can happen in a matter of just a few minutes. But despite that, you still walk away from this movie feeling hopeful. You still walk away from this movie feeling a little empowered because you could imagine what going and seeing a biopic about someone who's chasing their dreams and it doesn't go the way they wanted it to go, that it could be discouraging. Uh, I, I think of it akin to La La Land where it's like, Oh, Oh, their dreams. Oh, they're crushed. Like, Oh, they got there. Oh, but they really, it didn't, it didn't turn out. They didn't fall in love. They didn't. I mean, they fell in love, but they didn't get to stay together. But there's still like an appreciation of that uh, if you were uh, if you enjoyed the film, if you had those lenses on. But for this one, no matter what happens, even the people that they're happening to, the darkest things that are happening to them, there is this 
this love of life to keep going and keep trying. And that is what it's so uh, empowering about this movie. Um, I, I think, it, you know, Cam already watched it twice. I, w- I would venture to say I'm going to watch this again within the next month easily because I just want to have it on in the background or or sit down when I'm not feeling great. Like it's a good feeling movie. Uh, I just wish they would have got the pacing right. I do. I do. I'm so sorry. But I still think it's high on my list. It's getting an 8.3 out of 10 kernels today. Nice. Well done. Um, yeah. I mean, tick, tick, boom, man. What an interesting movie and what a, what an interesting potential TikTok contender boom. for awards. I think it'll be... Yeah, I, I wanted to say something similar to it's a feel-good movie, but not in the sense that you typically think a feel-good movie. <laughs> like It's not a feel-good movie in the sense that you... It's like a happy ending and everything's great. You know, it's a feel good movie in the sense that like you feel good at the end of it because you've gone through these emotions and it's a really rewarding uh, human experience by the end of it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to like say that. And then people are like, that movie was sad. You know, I like (laughs) he died the (laughs) night before his career would have taken off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's true, but. You know, emotions are good too. You know, feeling emotions can be good as well. It's true. So I've heard. I don't know Processing. anything about that. Yes. But uh, all right, that's our review. Tick, tick, boom. Lin Manuel Miranda is officially a film director. So I mean, you got here it comes coming right up. Uh, <laughs> no time now. But thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. We will not have any new episodes. You know, between this one and and when Thanksgiving happens. So enjoy this. Thank you for listening to it. As always have to plug our discord server. Would love you guys to be a part of that community that we're building out there. Um, It's a lot of fun. We talk about movies. We share recommendations for shows. We share memes. We share news. You know, a lot of times news stories that don't necessarily make it onto social media because they're a little more niche. uh, We'll throw in the discord just to be like, Hey, you guys, should still be interested in this. Uh, and some people are, so you can do that. And yeah, that's about it. We're, we'll be getting, I imagine we'll be getting spilled popcorn churned up again here soon for Hawkeye, uh, which is coming on Wednesday. I'm very excited about that. And keep your, keep your eyes peeled for future reviews coming from us for Encanto and Ghostbusters afterlife. I believe those are the two in the hopper next, but as always, We are going to give a special thanks to our executive producer, Ryan Spriggs, and the band who created our original music. That band is called Rhetoric. Check them out everywhere you listen to music, and we hope you have a fantastic Thanksgiving. Talk to you then.